Right, so let's, uh, let's start with uh, prayer. We're going to go through the actual crucifixion of Jesus. Everything's built up to this point, and now this is the actual crucifixion of Jesus. So it's, uh, yeah, th- th- this is the most central point of what, anything that happened in the whole cosmos, the Son of God being crucified. Right, so let's start with, uh, with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you, Father, to thank you for your Son, to thank you that he died for us on the cross, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to you, and that you so loved this world, that you gave your only begotten Son to die for us as he did, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. And we pray, Father, that you'll open our eyes as we try from a distance to reconstruct in our minds what happened. Please go with us, Father, for his sake and to his glory. Amen. Amen. Right, so we got up to the point yesterday where the Lord couldn't actually carry his cross, that it was actually too heavy for him. Right? And so at this point, Luke uh, records how they get this fellow Simon, who's just passing by, some random guy, to carry the cross after Jesus. And so Jesus has got part of the uh, tree trunk on his shoulder, and Simon is carrying the bit behind. And I said that if you put the four Gospels together, you find that actually Jesus collapsed, and they had to actually carry Jesus to the actual place of crucifixion. Well, while he is still carrying it, A great crowd of the people followed him, and women mourned and wailed for him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So, of course, the the whole thing was tragic, and of course people wept. And Jesus turns to them and says, Don't don't cry for me, what about me? But for yourselves. And I said yesterday that imagine you're carrying a very heavy load that is too heavy for you. Right? Well, all you're focused on is carrying this weight. And if you accidentally step on a child's toy and crush it, well, I, you know, that doesn't figure. Because you're focused on what you're doing. And the fact that the Lord Jesus, when he was carrying this cross, this, this uh, trunk of wood that was actually too heavy for him, that he thinks about other people, that he bothers to turn and talk to these women. It's just amazing. This is almost with his last breath. He's concerned about people, and that, to my mind, is a sign of the measure of the man, as would be said, uh, that he could look beyond his immediate pain to the needs and situation of others. And, of course, he foresees how, nearly 40 years later, Jerusalem would fall and the Jews would be destroyed uh, in Jerusalem, etc., And he doesn't want that to happen. And he knows that if they repent, it needn't happen. But he foresees that they won't repent. And so he says, don't cry for me, but for for your children. So this is so psychologically kind of credible that, you know, he, uh, he is there focusing on the needs of others, but these women just on the cusp of emotion were... Oh, very moved by the tragedy of the scene, but they were not going to repent. And so it can be with the message of Jesus that people are touched, and yet on the cusp of emotion, they may say, oh yes, I believe, and oh yes, make some confession of faith, or 
or do some great thing, give money or do something or other, on the cusp of emotion. But that is not, that is not actually going to save you of itself because he saw these women were like that. Oh, the tears on their cheeks for him. And he said, look, look, worry about yourselves. Think about yourselves and your children. You know, repent. Get yourself right. Don't worry about me. The cusp of emotion is not going to save you. You've got to bear that in mind. There's nothing wrong with church. But the problem with any church, any religious meeting, is that you're caught up in the cusp of emotion on that, on that point, at that moment. And, oh, yeah, you feel, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's all good, but that of itself is not going to save you. And so... <clears throat> He says that those are coming, and this, as I say, is talking about what happened in AD 70, 40 years later, in which they were saying, blessed are the valid, blessed are those women who, who never had children. And then shall they say to the mountains, fall on us and the hills, come us. Now that is what was going to, he's quoting here from the, um, from the Old Testament, that is what was going to be said by those condemned at the day of judgment. Oh, we just wish the... The hills would fall on us. We just want to die, but we can't. Seeking death and not finding it. He said, no, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to be condemned. Finally, when judgment comes, and I don't want that to happen. Crying for me? No. Cry for yourselves. Repent. Mourn for yourself. That is repent. So, two others, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place which is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So Jesus was crucified with criminals on both sides of him. He was treated as a criminal. And he wasn't. He was the only man who had never sinned. He was perfect. Never, ever sinned. And yet he died the death of a sinner thrown in with serious uh, murderers and, and so forth. And that is a theme, that he was treated as a sinner, although he was not a sinner. And in that sense, he carried our sins. We're told in Isaiah and often that Jesus carried our sins when he carried across a, a, a stake of wood, a, a, a tree trunk. And that tree trunk, therefore, represented our sins, the weight of what we have done. And he was treated, as I say, like a sinner. So... In that sense, he knows what it is like to be a sinner, although he never sinned. He knows what it's like to be treated as a sinner. God made him, Paul says, to be sin or a sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So, yes, yeah, sin does separate between God and man and between Jesus and man. Yeah, it does. And yet, in another sense, it doesn't, because he knows how it feels to be a sinner. And at the end, he's going to say, in one of his last phrases from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, I don't think God did forsake him, but that's how he felt. He absolutely felt like the sinner whom God has forsaken he was that identified with us. And as I say, sin does in one sense separate, but in another sense it doesn't because he knows how we feel when we sin. It's amazing how it all worked out in God's kind of uh, ecology, in God's kind of plan uh, 
putting it all together. So he, he dies with men on both sides of him. And I've suggested that this word translated cross uh, does just mean a tree, a tree trunk. And so I suggest he died with his hands above his, his head like that. And on both sides there were these other men. And there's an incident in the Old Testament that exactly prefigures that. It's when um, Moses is praying for Israel who are fighting a battle. And they are down in the valley, led by Joshua, and they're fighting the battle. And Moses is up the mountain with two men, Aaron and Hur, on both sides of him. And we're told whenever Moses kept his hands up, Israel were winning. When he let his hands down, Israel started losing. So Aaron and Hur held his hands, his arms up. And uplifted arms is always prayer. That's what it means. That's what it, uh, is how it's used in the Bible. And so, that incident where Moses is there praying passionately for the people and they're winning, as it were, with men on both sides of him, this is looking forward. We could say it's a type. It's something looking ahead. Uh, to the Lord Jesus. So, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. When you look at all the four Gospels and you put them together, you find that there's seven things he says while he's on the cross. And this is the first one, when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the last one is, into your hand I commend my spirit. So, when you put those seven sayings, they are chronologically, and when you look at them in the Greek or Aramaic, which I guess was a language he spoke, you find that the first one, Father forgive them for they know not what they do, has got 12 words in it in Greek. And as you go through the seven sayings, the seven things he says, he uses fewer and fewer words. Until at the end he says, I thirst. And then it is finished, which is one word in, in Greek. Um, and, and so that is sort of, again, incredible, because he starts off with the energy to speak, but as the time goes on while he's hanging there, it goes down. Because to speak in the crucified position was very, very difficult. It, it doesn't give the details, does it? It just says, there they crucified him. There is no detail. It doesn't say, and a soldier took a nail and banged it into one uh, palm and then into another arm or whatever. It doesn't say that. We are, and why doesn't it? Because we are left to imagine it. And we have to do this. We have to reconstruct in our own minds the crucifixion of Jesus because he died for us now what would have happened yes they would have laid him down on the, on the tree trunk and they would have nailed his hands and his feet with uh, nails now they've discovered archaeologists have discovered what seems to be the remains of crucifixion victims and these Nails were about were made of iron, and they were like seven inches long, quite quite big. And of course, that'd be fairly big to hold a man's weight on them. 
Now, when iron, and those nails are made of iron, when iron gets involved with your blood, gets into your bloodstream, it will produce sweating, it it will produce twitching and things like that. It's very difficult to twitch when you're crucified, when you're nailed. Crucifixion was a form of torture, definitely. And you've got to put this together with the fact that we're told in John's Gospel, not a bone of him was broken, because he was the equivalent of the Passover lamb. And the Passover lamb, we're told, not a bone of it was to be broken. So how does that work? That Jesus was crucified with nails, but not a bone of him was broken. Well, the weight would have been on, on, his, uh, on his hands. If you actually put a, bang a nail through your palm, for one thing you're going to break a load of bones, but then if you hang your, the whole weight on that, it's not going to hold. It's going to fall. And so it seems that they, they banged the nail through this bit here, what I'm pointing to. And that is called the Desto Gap. And you can feel it in your own uh, arm because there, there is a gap. You've got two big bones here and then the bones that are in your hand, but in here there aren't any bones, actually. What there is in there is a network of nerves a network of nerves that signal pain to the brain. So when you put your finger in fire, then the nerve centre, this is like a nerve centre in there, that signals to your brain pain. Now, if not a bone of him was broken, that six, seven inch nail, iron nail, would have been driven right through there, and that is in fact how they used to crucify people. Not through the palms, but through there. Incidentally, in Hebrew, in fact, as in Russian, um, there is no difference between the word for hand and the word for arm. You may find that difficult to get your head around in English. Um, Like in Russian, ruk. Uh, This can be your hand or your arm. In English, it's hard to get your brain around that because you have a word for hand, you have a word for for, for arm. In Hebrew, there is not that distinction, as in Russian and in other languages, there is not that distinction. And so, yeah, he was crucified in the hands. Well, yes, here, that, 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 that's legitimately in the, in the hand, in the arm, here. So, I said the crucifixion was a form of torture. And what I used to do, it wasn't just a tree trunk. There was nailed into the tree trunk what they called a seat a sedile sedile in, uh, in Latin which was like a, well like something that you could rest on and why crucifixion victims took so long to die is that there you were struggling for every breath, struggling for every breath but you could just take a break you could just, just sit a little bit on that seat on that bit of wood that they nailed into the tree trunk and take a break. That's why, you know, the Lord was there for eight hours and they said, oh, he's dead. And Pilate said, how did he die so quickly? 
And they sent soldiers to check whether Jesus was really dead. So why did Jesus die so quickly? And why did crucifixion victims generally linger for a long time? It's because they did the natural thing and took the break, just pushed back on that seat. Why did Jesus die so quickly? Excuse me. Why did Jesus die so quickly? Because he didn't take that opportunity. What, what a man amongst men. What, what absolute self-control. What absolute self-control. That he did not take that easy way. Now you and I attempted, you know, minute by minute really, to take the easy way or to take the right way. Or go the easy way because it's... I'm afraid that is the easy way, isn't it? That, that is how it is. Um, oh, I fancy shouting at that person. I fancy saying this, or, oh, I'm going to say that. Oh, should I, shouldn't I? And they say, oh, yeah, well, I will, you know. Uh, we take that easy way. And unfortunately, that is the path of people. So you see how Jesus was so self-controlled in that very, very difficult situation that he was in. And absolutely, he is held up there as our pattern, as our example. But not only as our pattern, as our example, but as our saviour. Because when you look at him there, time and again, you get that strong impression. I would not have endured this. I would not have done this. I would have failed. Whatever. Anyway, so there he is. And the first thing he says is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, he says that straight away, once he has been lifted up and is crucified. So at that point, of course, the whole thing was incredibly painful all the way through. But, I mean, it's hard to measure pain sort of on a, on a meter, as it were. But I think that... Um, that would have been perhaps the maximum impact of pain. He would have realised, oh, I can't move. Every slight breath he took to fill his lungs with air to, to, to talk, to, uh, to, to, to breathe, would have been extremely painful because you're having to move slightly and you're pulling onto those nails, which, as I say, were nailed through that desto gap, through that nerve centre that we have, um, in between those two, those two bones that, uh, that, that there are just uh, by hands. And so, at, at that point of maximum pain, he says, Father, forgive them. And we are told again, if you put the Gospels together, that the other guys, the two other guys, were cursing. Yeah, sure, they were cursing. Uh, absolutely, no surprises there. This would be an absolutely normal reaction. But he says, Father, forgive them, because they know not what they do. And you notice how he calls God Father. And the fact that God is our Father, this is a hugely comforting thing. In fact, in his ministry, in his life, Jesus prayed to God using the word Abba, which means not just Father, but Daddy. This is the, the, the word of a child to Daddy. This is how close he felt, how close he felt. And when it came to the crucifixion, yeah, when it came to the crucifixion, he has that same feeling. Daddy, father, 
forgive them because they know not what they do. Well, that is a, uh, a difficult one to understand. Was he talking about the Roman soldiers? Actually, they were just doing their job. It was their job to crucify people. Was he talking about the Jews? And he says, because they know not what they do. He also says to the Jews, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So I'm not sure he was saying, oh, God, just like, forgive the Jews. Yeah, they don't know what they're doing. Well, they did know what they were doing, surely. In the parable, they say, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. Um, I also just query whether ignorance is a basis for forgiveness. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they do. Under the law of Moses, if you committed a sin in ignorance, you still had to offer a sacrifice. Is it really so that, well, he was just praying for forgiveness of sins of ignorance? Well, there's another suggestion. Father, I mean, I've thought about this for 40 years, and all sorts of ideas have gone through my head different times. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We tend to think, well, he's talking about the Romans or the guys who are actually banging the nails in, or the Jews or people at that time. But I wonder if when he says, Father, forgive them, the them who he has in mind is us. For they know not what, what they do. Yeah, we were not even born. And, you know, when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And it seems to me that he had a kind of vision of us as he was dying. He saw the joy set before him. In some of the Psalms you get this very clearly. That he has some kind of awareness as he died that he was dying for us that he saw, you know, a bunch of, what, 20, 30, 40 people in Croydon. And he saw us, ordinary guys in London, here, like loving him, wanting to be with him. And, of course, the whole huge millions of, uh, of the redeemed who he was going to save. So my suggestion is that he had us in mind as he was dying. And so, when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do... He has in mind us and all our mess-ups, all our sins, dysfunctions, laziness, whatever the reason is for the sin, whatever it was, railroaded to this, that, the other, whatever, that whatever reason, whatever sin, forgive them. Forgive them. And, yeah, that would make sense, because it fits in then with the whole of the rest of the basic teaching of the New Testament, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that all the way through the Bible this is said, that he died there for our sins. Forgive them. Who? Us. Our sins. For they know not what they do. At that time, of course, we didn't exist. We didn't know what we were doing. That's my little suggestion, as I say, after over 40 years scratching my head, wondering what this means. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, that's my take, which I, uh, I'm rather keen on at the moment, so I'll, I'll leave that with you to think about. So... Of course it's a great pattern to us of forgiveness because it's quite easy to forgive somebody if they come crawling to you saying, I'm terribly sorry, I nicked, uh, I nicked 10 quid out of your pocket, I'm terribly sorry, here it is back, would you forgive me? Oh, well, it's not difficult when somebody 
shouldn't be difficult. If somebody's sorry, oh yes, of course. You know, I didn't have any food yesterday, so I'm sorry, but I did, and I had to feed my son and all that. You think, okay, fine, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, the nub of the issue with forgiveness is do you forgive without repentance, or when that repentance has not yet happened? And that is how we were forgiven. We were forgiven on the cross while we were yet sinners before we'd even lived. You know? that, that, that's the thing. And of course, yeah, I would say, yeah, you do have to forgive without repentance. Um, that doesn't mean you trust. You don't have to trust somebody. You may forgive somebody. Or let's say, nicking ten quid out of your pocket or whatever. But that doesn't mean you trust them. It doesn't mean you, you're okay with them. I mean, David forgave King Saul for persecuting him in a sense, but, but he didn't trust him. And Saul says, oh, come back and live with me in the palace. He's like, I don't think so, mate. And he keeps away from him. And so that is how it is that you don't, you know, forgiveness is not the same as trust. It is not the same as rebuilt relationship. It, it, it isn't. But I do suggest that it is, in fact, the only way, even if it may be the hardest way, uh, to forgive without repentance. Well, the final thing I want to touch on is that like, he says these amazing words, Father, forgive them if they know not what they do, and they divided up his, lot, his clothes by casting lots. And he, again, you've got to put all the gospel records together. That the soldiers who crucified him were there at the foot of the cross, throwing a die in order to decide who got his jacket, who got his sandals, who got what he, what he had on. And that's what they were doing. Just what? Two metres away from the crucified Son of God, from the dying Son of God. Guys were just more caught up with, who's going to have this, who's going to have that? Quite pathetic. Really tragic. That people were so small-minded. And so it is today, you can preach the cross of Jesus Christ to men and women. Oh, but I'm more interested in, oh, oh, I'm just caught up with whatever it is, um, my new job, or oh, 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 I've got to sort this out, I've got to sort that out. Material things. And that uh, this should happen, as I say, within, what, two metres, is so tragic. Now, uh, of the dying Son of God. Now, he was crucified, I've suggested, on a tree trunk, and I said that that is what the word means. Now, that means that Jesus was not crucified way up in the sky. When you look at, for example, a, a, a Roman Catholic cathedral, you look up, and wow, there is this crucifix way, way, way up there, and we little sinners are down here, and think, oh, wow. And there can be the impression that Jesus was crucified way up there. But I don't think so, because there's not many really big trees in Israel. Uh, it's not like they have massive big oak trees, uh, very commonly. And one man could carry his own cross. So it wasn't like a huge, great, big, thick oak tree. And so it would have been a tree big enough for one man to carry, even if it was heavy for him. So it was not a huge tree. And, as I say, the archaeological evidence of crucifixion is not that it was great big tall trees at all. So the feet of Jesus would have been, I don't know, maybe up to my chest. He wasn't way up there. 
He was above us, yes, but not way up there. And again, in John's Gospel, putting it together, when he says, I thirst, it says that they took a hyssop, a hyssop, like a reed, and put some, a sponge with vinegar on it and held it up to him. Well, a hyssop is not that long, about as long as that gentleman's walking stick, I would say. So the, the hyssop was, what, one and a half metres long, max. And they used that to get the sponge to the mouth of Jesus. So I don't think that he was way up there. And of course that's how it is, that he is far nearer to us than we imagine. Right, so then, we take the bread and the cup as the symbol of his body and his blood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the death of your son, for that huge gift that you gave us. We see in the bread the symbol of his body, we see in the cup the symbol of his blood. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that he died for us, the good for the bad that he might bring us to you, the just for the unjust. And we pray, Father, that we might respond, that we might see in him your love and your personal call to me, and that we might respond for his sake and to his glory and your glory. Amen. All right. We're going to just um, give thanks for the food. Uh, to make a journey. Would you like to pray for the food? Sure. Thank you. Right, just, uh, Tamika's just going to give a prayer for the food. Thank you, Father. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the food that we're about to eat, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we will be satisfied with it, Father. You know, there's so many people without food, Lord. So may we, you know, just be, be grateful and thankful for all that we do have, Lord. And we pray for those who have nothing. And thank you, Father, for getting us all here safely as well today, Lord. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.